FaceTime Podcast. My name is Tyler Publitz, and welcome back to the fourth Sunday in Lent for the week of March 19th, 2023, and I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to dig into this week's podcast, and I'm excited that I'm not in completely snowed in. It's been a very snowy area where I'm at in northern Minnesota, and I'm also really excited about that there are some things that I'm working on behind the scenes. I'll be able to announce them within the next couple of weeks, but I'm really excited about what this is going to possibly mean for all of our listeners. I'm really excited about some of the things that we're moving and shaking here behind the scenes. And so stay tuned for that. That's your little bit of a teaser for what's coming here in the next couple of weeks. So you're going to have to stay, listen and stay tuned. But before we jump into this week's podcast, we have to look at last week's Twitter question, which was, what are the little things that we overlook? And we heard some good responses talking about, thinking about the the pandemic and the blessings that did come from that and recognizing the community and different things that came from that. But there was a response to a question that I put out two weeks ago from a loyal listener, and I thought it was really good. So we have to reflect back on that question, but it does tie in the last week's Twitter question, which was, when have you allowed a new perspective into your life that allowed yourself to change your perspective? And this person goes through and talks about how different people have offered suggestions throughout their life, which made major steering points within their own life and faith and what they ended up doing. But the aspect of how the ones that he talks about that are most influential, especially on his faith, was going into places and having an opinion, but allowing himself to hear the other side of the argument and allowing himself to be able to change. And I think, especially within the world that we're in, unfortunately, because of like social media and how we seem to be tracking how people are voting and people are doing this and that and the other thing, it makes it perceive that it's harder for us to change our opinion, much less that it also means that we need to make snap decisions on what we think is right. And I think the quote here at the end, I think is really important to hear And I think it is impactful for us, especially when we are thinking about like little things that we're overlooking. I quote from this response, I think we learn by exposure to different viewpoints. If we only associate with folks who totally agree, there's no learning, no progress, no advancement of human condition. It reminds me of some folks who have their minds set up and don't want to be confused by hearing facts or truth. And sometimes we learn something about ourselves. And I take that even that second part who get confused by hearing facts or truth or sometimes both sides can have facts and truth. It's that we don't want to hear the facts and truth that potentially oppose our side. And I think when we're thinking about and looking at things that are often overlooked, things that are often considered trash or waste or not important. I think it's really important for us to be able to hear the other side enough for us to be able to recognize how important that is. Be able to recognize that the other viewpoint is important and the other viewpoint allows us to grow. And as we've talked about in scientific studies before, those competing vantage points and differing ideas allows us to be able to actually think outside the box and think about things in a new and unique perspective and allows us to actually grow. So let's just jump into the text for this week. The text this week overall are fairly familiar and hopefully we can kind of whiz right through these pretty quickly. So our Old Testament text is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, the first 13 verses of it. This is the text that 
is the Lord talking to Samuel that the kingship of Saul, and remember the, how the people had wanted Saul, and the relationship has turned sour, and now is the time where the Lord is telling Samuel to go and anoint the next king. Samuel is a little bit wary of this because in a way you're committing betrayal to the king. He's worried that this is going to be something that could cause disruption. The Lord just tells Samuel, trust me on this. You'll have this. Invite Jesse's family. And when he goes to Bethlehem to have this ceremony, the people there, the leaders of the temple are, are you coming to be peaceable or cause an argument? He's saying peaceable. He then has all these sons of Jesse line up as they're committing the sacrifice and figuring out who is the one that the Lord is wanting to lead the tribe of Israel. And again, after again, and again, after again, all these people who look from the outside that they're ready, but God says, no, I know the inside. I'm looking at the inside and none of these are right. Samuel asked Jesse, are all of them here after going through everyone? Well, all but the youngest, he's with the sheep, sends for him, brings him, And even though we get this weird line that, yes, David was handsome and he anoints David and says that he will be the next king then of Israel. Kind of this text of kind of going back and forth, a little bit of conjuring and back and forth there, but also this aspect of trust. And I think also one of the things I think we'll bring up a little bit later in the discussion is in the first verse there of chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being the king of Israel and then tells what to do. But I think that first initial question is quite important. The psalm that goes with this is arguably the most familiar psalm. You could argue in certain ways a very important psalm because it is a very comforting psalm. It is Psalm 23, all six verses of it. The Lord is my shepherd psalm. This psalm that helps us in the first four verses feel like a sheep and how God is making sure and walking us through and taking care of us. And then it kind of turns on its head in starting in verse four, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for your rod and your staff for they comfort me. And then you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. So much that is loaded into those six verses of a comfort and recognizing that God is still with us in these difficult times and difficult moments of our own life to walk us through. The New Testament text is our break from Romans. It is Ephesians chapter 5 verses 8 through 14. This text, I feel, is here because it kind of will tie in with where we are with the gospel text, and it helps us understand that we are children of the light, that we were once in darkness, but the Lord has provided this light coming from verse 8. And in doing that, we recognize that we are associated with that, that that is placed in us, that the Lord placed it there. And God exposes all these different things in the light and making sure that we then are a light that shines in the darkness and we shine that radiance of God's love through the light that God has been put into us. The gospel text this week is out of John chapter 9, the first 41 verses of it. This is, again, a fairly familiar gospel. This is Jesus is walking along, sees a blind man who's been blind from birth. The disciples even ask him in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, neither. 
And in that, then we get then in verse five, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So again, continuing these I am statements, he then spits in the ground and puts mud and saliva on his eyes. He tells him to go and wash in the pool of solemn, which means scent. And when he comes back, he has his sight. People are wondering, is this really the same person? Is this the one? Is it just someone who looks like him? And the guy responds with, this man called Jesus put mud on spread on my eyes. And he said to me, go to Solomon and wash. And then I went and washed and I received my sight. People are questioning. They bring him before the Pharisees and they knew that he had been blind. And they're confused because this is a Sabbath. Is this really what should be happening? What all happened? He tells his story again. The Pharisees then are pondering, questioning, this man is can't be from God. He's not observing the Sabbath, but yet he's performing signs and miracles, which no man can do. So they're confused and they ask him, well, who do you think did this? He says a prophet. The Jews are just kind of all up in arms. So we'll bring in his parents. The parents Yes, we know that our son was born blind and now he sees you can ask him on who did this because he's of age and they're scared to say anything because at that point, if you confess that Jesus was the Messiah, you'd be kicked out of the synagogue. The church being weird church, (laughs) even back in Jesus's time. Therefore, they're asking, ask him, they call him again. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. The one thing I do know, though, is I was blind, but now I see they're questioning who is this person and just can't wrap their head around it and asking him if you are a disciple and the Pharisees saying, we're disciples of Moses. Are you a disciple of him? And he just telling his truth of all he knows. And the thing is, is when we get to the end of this dialogue, the man says this, I think, beautiful thing coming, starting in verse 30. Here's the astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened their eyes of a person born blind. If this man is not from God, he could do nothing. So it's this statement of faith that we get from the man, but yet there's still questioning what is going on. Jesus comes to this man then, starting in verse 35, after they've kind of driven him out, and he states, do you believe in the Son of Man? That same man responds with, and who is he, sir? Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus responds with, you have seen him, and the one speaking to you is he. He responds with, Lord, I believe, and worshiped him. Jesus then comes in and says, I came in the world for judgment for those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees then are, surely we are not the blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see and your sin remains, this conflict of interest that you're seeing within the Pharisees. So before we jump into how faith and science come together this week, we have to do a shameless plug. Oh, Working Preacher, if you have a true working preacher, I'd highly recommend it between their certain brainwaves, podcasts, their commentaries, and discussions. Since I'm not an ordained minister, I use them on a weekly basis to help bring this podcast together. Along with their commentaries, their discussions, there's a lot of great things going on over there. So if you haven't checked out Working Preacher, I'd highly recommend it. I'd also highly recommend checking out the Revised Common Lectionary coming from Vanderbilt's Divinity Library. You know that I use their text week after week to be able to go through this stuff, but I also really enjoy looking at their art, the prayers, the hymns, the liturgical colors. So if you haven't checked out this great resource coming from Vanderbilt's Divinity Library, I'd highly recommend that also.
I think there is a lot in the Old Testament text from 1 Samuel that applies to our world today, and it beautifully ties in with the gospel text. The question of the Lord to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I think it's a great question for a lot of different issues that we have within our world where we know something is broken, when we know something isn't right, and we still grieve it. We still wait. The tribe of Israel knows that Saul at that point is not a good king, but yet they're still waiting for Saul to die for anything to happen or that God isn't going to do something about it? Or how about these Pharisees? When a miracle is happening, instead of acknowledging it, instead of recognizing that God might be doing a new thing, is so stuck in that God wouldn't do that because it wouldn't fit within the framework of how we understand something to work. And when we think about those things, I think there's a lot of ways that it ties into the world in which we're in today. And I think one of them is ocean plastics. Hear me out on this. We have heard about the Great Garbage Patch in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is one of five of these garbage patches around the world that is floating trash and it's hazy. And we've been working on figuring out ways and efficient ways to be able to pick up this trash. But as they've kind of been going through this and working on this over multiple years, the issue becomes, where is it all? They've estimated that the Great Garbage Patch in and of itself is maybe only about 1% of the ocean's plastics that are there. And through research, there is a lot of different theories and a lot of different ideas, and it's very hard to get percentages. But yes, you have the Great Garbage Patch of that floating on the surface out in the middle of the ocean. You have the seafloor sediment, which we've been able to actually pick it up in sediment samples, that plastic fibers that are in the sample, which are matching the global production rate. So as the production rate of plastics is increased over time, we're seeing more and more plastic fibers within the sediment samples. And before we get into further details, I think we have to understand a little bit of the history of plastic in and of itself was originally invented with natural and synthetic production of plastics in 1862, making the first full synthetic in 1912. And the real modern age, if you want to put it that way, of plastics and the ramping of plastics came in 1939 with World War II and especially coming out of the war. That's where plastics were light. They were efficient. It was simple. It drove down costs. It was a great thing. But is it really? What is plastic anyways? I think that one of the things that we have to picture with plastic is recognizing that plastic is just fossil fuel in a physical form. It's taking oil and putting it into a physical form. Currently, 6% of the world's oil production goes into making consumer plastics, which is the equivalent amount of fossil fuels that go into making jet fuel. And with how a lot of these big oil companies and trying to go green and seeing the writing on the wall with petrol and gasoline and different items like that, they're trying to ramp up plastic production. And with their current estimates, they figure that 20% of the world's fossil fuels will be going into plastics by 2050. This is kind of an alarming thing when you think about it and makes for a difficult reality. Like a simple plastic bottle takes 450 years to break down. So a plastic bottle that I am drinking now takes four or five generations or more to break down. Currently, 30 million pounds of plastic is deposited into the ocean every 15 hours, which is kind of an alarming statistic in and of itself. 
But let's get back to where is all this plastic going? We get some of the large plastics due to sink to the bottom of the ocean due to their original weight. And we have to remember that it's hard in some places for us to be able to actually get to the bottom of the ocean, but we've been finding ocean plastics all over the world. We found it on Mount Everest. We found them in Antarctica. We found them in the Arctic Ocean. They're all over the place. But some of these lighter weight plastics will get barnacles, mussels, other organic organisms that will cling on and then help bring them to the ocean floor. A lot of plastics upwards to 77% the first five to 10 years probably spend within a hundred miles of the coastline. And it just keeps moving back and forth with the tide, getting moved beach to beach. And this is where the breakdowns of plastics start happening, where we get into microplastics and it getting into even our food supply. Additionally, having the sun being able to help degrade some of these plastics, and there's upwards to maybe 7 to 22% of plastics getting broken down that way, and it's hard for us to calculate, again, as it's not efficiently being tracked and not efficiently getting into a recycling system. At the current pace that we are using plastic, all the plastic that has been invented up to this point we are going to double in the next 20 years. And if you think about that, it's really been almost 100 years of plastic, and now we're going to double it again in the next 20. And that also could mean that the amount of plastic that is in the ocean by 2050 could outweigh the world population of fish that are in the ocean. This also raises another problem, our inefficiency with recycling plastics. Only about 9% of plastics are recycled, and some of this is due to it's so costly. There are plastics that get brought to a recycling center that are seen as too costly to be able to efficiently recycle, and so then they get put on ships to ship to other areas, which then cause some of this leaking problem of plastics into the ocean to begin with because we don't want to deal with them. On top of that, of the plastics that are recycled, that original 9%, only 10% of those will be able to be recycled again a second time. This has caused a problem, and really one of the solutions becomes that we need to look at reducing our plastic demand. Think about how many things, especially in the United States of America, have plastic around them. And the thing is, is that the ways that we make plastic, again, using these fossil fuels also put toxic emissions into the air. And so areas that are producing plastic also have higher cancer risk for the people living nearby. And at the current pace, because of the plastic emissions, we're looking at 56 gigatons by 2050, which would be 10 to 13% of our carbon budget if we're going to stay under the 1.5 degrees Celsius to be able to make this earth more habitable long term. This gets scary to me in a lot of ways. Fortunately, there are a few different things that we can do. One of the resources that I'll attach down below is a TED Talk talking about the plastic bank, which especially a lot of the plastics that are leaked into the ocean, upwards of 80%, come from areas that are going through economic poverty because they don't have the systems to be able to recycle the plastic. So thus it leaks into our ecosystem. And when I say ecosystem, I mean the whole ecosystem because this is affecting 
all of us. So one of the things that this person proposed is having a plastic bank where essentially hiring people to help clean up and bring in and turn in plastic, thus having a value on plastic and in doing that, being able to then pay these people, which then is also helping solve some of the crisis to begin with, that we're putting a value on something that we don't want into the ecosystem. Plus you're empowering the people through cash and putting it into an online savings account, which then can allow them to use that and be able to move about and increase their economic level. Also, in doing that, you're creating industry and thus creating and helping to establish some of these recycling programs. And I would argue, as a first world nation, I think part of this is because we invented this stuff initially, we maybe need to take responsibility of helping some of these places that maybe don't have the financial resources to actually start these programs to benefit the whole world. But that's my opinion. Some of the other ways that we need to really look at things is reducing plastic, just the use and how it's made, the over packaging and different things of that nature, using paper and compostables instead, making products that are designed to be recycled, scaling up waste collection. Where I grew up, recycling was not collected. You had to go and bring it in yourself expand recycling capacity and making it more profitable, thus making it more desired to be able to actually be done. Figuring out how to convert plastics into different types of plastics that aren't necessarily the same type. How to safely dispose of plastics that can't be recycled easily. And then we really shouldn't be shipping our plastic waste to another area. It just doesn't make a ton of sense. There's also a few things that we have to contemplate here when we're looking at plastics in and of itself. One, these ocean collection pickups, they're awesome in a lot of ways. And like we talked about, there's a lot along the coastline, but 30 million pounds of plastic being picked up on the U.S. coastline equals three one thousandths of a percent of the amount of plastic waste that we create here in just the United States. And I think that's where we need to be able to reduce our consumption, to be able to see and visualize what is going on. But the environment is also adapting. There is a bacteria called Rhodicus rubar that in the lab, granted in the lab, we have shown it to be able to break down plastics into CO2 and other natural components. And that's a start. The final thing on where some of this plastic is probably disappearing is into our creation, into our sea life, whether mammals, fish, or otherwise. Barnacles, bacteria, breaking this down or putting it into their stomachs where they can't break it down. How does this all tie into our text? First, we have to acknowledge the problem. When you look at the gospel text, Jesus is showing that this is a fairly familiar character based on that the Pharisees and the local townspeople know who this person is. He's been overlooked for years. Jesus goes and does something about it. And because of the structures of the day, the Pharisees are questioning, should this even been done? And then they're questioning, is this really the person that he says he is? They bring in his parents. They can't trust what he's saying. It's that they don't want to acknowledge what is actually going on. Which goes back to that initial question that I really like in the first Samuel is, how long will you grieve over Saul? How long will we overlook this person? How long will we overlook this issue? We know what's going on. We know how to prevent it and how to stop it. And cleaning up the trash afterwards is great, but it's not really stopping the problem. Are we being led by still waters and green pastures? Or are we just wanting to focus on that we're in this dark valley and at least there's some things that are looking, but we're not doing anything to prevent it to begin with? 
Are we letting the light that was in embedded into us coming out of Ephesians to be visible out in the world because we're looking at it and saying, wow, this is really having a hard time for a lot of our economic neighbors and it's affecting the whole world. It's affecting the creation that we have been told to take care of. It's affecting our own food because we're finding microplastics within our own food and our body doesn't know what to do with it. It's causing toxic fumes to go out into the atmosphere and we don't know what to do about that, but it's causing cancer and hurting other people. Are we looking and thinking about that? Are we going to constantly be about maintaining the old system? Maintaining that this is the way that things have been done for the last 70 years, so why change it? I think one of the other things that we really need to look at here as a church, Big C Church, we really need to look at what the Pharisees are asking and stare ourselves in the mirror and are we doing the same thing? That we're struggling to recognize a change of something that is going on. And it's not just the church, it's the world. Do we struggle to recognize that there can be a change in something that's going on and what does that actually mean for us? Are we ready to take that step to acknowledge the change and allow ourselves to change? To drastically change. Jesus drastically changed things. The systems in which they knew were no longer applicable because of how much Jesus changed things. He's coming in and talking about the ways that you're understanding things. I'm trying to help you understand a whole nother part of God. This multiple-sided, omnipotent being. Just like you have multiple different sides and parts of you, so does God. And you're looking at it so rigidly, you can't see it. You're looking at the world so rigidly, and this is how we use things, and this is how we consume things, and this is how it damages things, but who cares? It makes my life more convenient. We don't want to acknowledge the amount of impact negatively that it's having. And the thing is, is it affects all of us because it's getting into the food supply for all of us. Do we not want to acknowledge this? You bet. We want to sit and realize that man changes hard. Man, we don't want to do this. Man, this is a battle. When we have things showing that the environment is adapting, if we can adapt also and change our habits and reduce our consumption and help our environment, maybe then we would actually be beside still waters, as the psalm said, and led into green pastures where we can lie down instead of beaches that are filled with plastic that make it difficult to do so. Maybe then we can start seeing the light of Christ not only in us but in others as we recognize the differing opinions are okay, as we recognize the beauty in each other instead of pointing the finger and saying you're to blame, to recognize that this should be a celebration of a man being able to see and especially in that time and place as I talked about in Working Preacher, that the light was emitted from the eyes, that there was a new light, a new spirit was thought of at that time, the science of the day, of how this person was, we, he would have been given new life. We, as a global community, can be given new life if we're willing to recognize and understand this and be willing to change. In this season of Lent where things are difficult and lots of self-reflection, I think we have to be willing to change. Change is not the thief of joy, but I think one of the thieves of joy can be complacency. And as a global community, there is so much joy in us being able to work together and accomplish big things that seem hard and seem difficult because we say they're too hard and too difficult, so I'll stay put and do what I've always done. As I talked with my wife a little bit about what I was planning on talking about, I think she had a great idea for a question this week of how are you doing your small change? How are you doing a small change to affect our global community? And I think for me, I need to continue to work on that. <laughs> I think there's a lot of little things where I can work on that. 
I think one is I probably use too many paper towels and I could probably use an actual dish rig for a lot of things that I use a paper towel for, which would be more environmentally friendly and not get into my plastic trash bag as quickly either. I think it's also reconsidering just simple day-to-day tasks, maybe trying to figure out ways at the grocery store to not take those single-use plastic bags and do something small so that those just sit there and maybe they get pushed to get something more sustainable like i mean i don't know maybe a paper bag instead not a huge step but it's a step we as a world know that through a lot of small little steps we can make big differences and through those little steps it makes it easier for us to make a bigger step bigger steps lead to giant steps giant steps lead to transformations and i think as we look at whether it be ocean plastic or someone being healed to be able to see or having a new king being anointed or being recognizing that the light within us needs to shine or being able to follow Jesus not just through the difficult patches and trusting he's there but also being led to places where it is easier even if that's hard to get to that place initially. The world has some big challenges in front of it over the next 20 to 30 years and I think it's one of those times where we can either buck the trend or dig in and work hard together. I don't know about you but I sure hope that all of us are ready to bring our hard hats, maybe metal hard hats, and get to work. Because I'm excited about what the world could be and should be if we all work together on these issues, be able to see what God's creation was meant to look like instead of what it was looking like. So, we'll wrap this up as we always do. I pray God blesses you through your faith and amazes you through science. <laughs>